Welcome to the Stepmomming Made Easy podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Skiles. Stepmomming is a wild ride, but you don't have to go it alone anymore. I'm here to give you validating insights and powerful shifts to build a stepmom life you love. This is your safe space. Welcome home, my friend. Hello and welcome to the Stepmomming Made Easy podcast. Oh my gosh, today I am so excited. We have a special guest and we are talking about an incredible topic. I know it's going to help so many people. Hi, Megan. Hello. Thank you for having me today, Kristen. I'm so excited to talk to you and anyone who's listening. Yes. Oh my gosh. I have (laughs) wanted to talk about high conflict co-parenting in season one, and I'm just so glad that we get to talk about it in season two, and with no one better than the expert. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad you're here. I'm going to take just a quick second to read your bio for anyone who may not be familiar with you, and then let's dive in. Sounds good. Great. Megan Hunter, MBA, is an expert on high conflict disputes. She is co-founder of the High Conflict Institute, along with author and speaker Bill Eddy, LCSW who developed the high conflict personality theory. Megan developed the concept of the Institute after 13 years in policy, legislation, and judicial training with the Arizona Supreme Court and five years with the Dawes County Attorney's Office in Nebraska. She is founder and publisher of Unhooked Books, a U.S.-based media company. And on top of all of that, you're also a stepmom. Can you tell us more about your family structure and dynamics? Oh, you bet. I've been doing this stepmomming thing for about ooh, 17 years and three months now. So I was uh, a mom of three and got divorced when my kids were young and, you know, kind of raised them on my own, developed our own culture, right? And eventually met uh, like the best man in the world. So sorry, ladies, but I found him myself and uh, I snagged him and he had five children. So when we got married, we had eight altogether and seven of them were living at home still. And they were all teenagers, every last one of them. So it was pretty exciting. The oldest one was already out living on her own. She was actually in Europe, employed in Europe at that point. So, but we had seven and that was a challenge. Yes. I cannot even imagine seven teens under one roof. It was a lot. It was a lot. And it was, as you know, and your listeners know, blended families are two different cultures. And ours, you know, we only dated for one year before we got married. So our kids didn't even have that much time to get to know each other. You know, in hindsight, now I look at it and realize maybe if they were little kids, it would be very different. But they were all in those teen years and they had their established patterns and cultures. And it was a nightmare. Even from the, the, from the like the functional pieces of parking cars so that, you know, they went to four different schools so that they, you know, the people that needed to go get to school first in the morning could get out before the other ones. And it was then all the way to just trying to get along and understand each other. And now I'm getting some PTSD. So I'm going to have to do it. <laughs> okay. Let's, <switch> gears. <laughs> Let's talk about something less triggering, like high conflict people. <laughs> exactly. No problem. Was there anything in particular that really drew you to this area of study? Yeah, with high conflict, you know, I was in the courts, as you mentioned in my bio, and had oversight of the family courts. And 
I would talk to the judges and, you know, the lawyers. I was kind of the hub in the middle of the wheel of all the stakeholders involved in family law, which is huge. And they had one common problem and it was high conflict cases and no one knew what to do with them. And regardless of whether it was litigation or mediation, parent education classes, nothing seemed to help really or help for very long. So they were back in court a lot. So I kind of, you know, have a business background and I made it my mission to find someone who understood what was driving high conflict cases in family court. And I eventually just somehow accidentally ran into this, some writing by a guy named Bill Eddy, and he had a a licensed clinical social work background, became a family law attorney later and started putting the pieces together about things he'd seen in his social worker practice and clinical settings that were rearing their ugly heads in family court. So we started the High Conflict Institute together after I had him come to Arizona and do a lot of training and just saw the need that if you're involved in family cases, you need to understand what's happening here. Yes, absolutely. So let's start super high level. How do you define a high conflict person? Are there common patterns that you see with high conflict people? Yeah, great question. So, you know, people do have different definitions of high conflict people or the high conflict personality. People think it's someone who's, you know, yelling a lot or there's just a lot of fighting, and that can be a part of it, but there's a true pattern of behavior to the high conflict person. Really behind all of this is a fear-based operating system. Like if someone programmed this person, like a computer, they would program them to be the one type is fear of being feeling inferior. So they have to be superior all the time. One fears feeling abandoned. So they need to feel connected and attached. One needs to feel center of attention. They can't be ignored. One needs to feel like they're dominating everyone all the time. They're just always paranoid about being betrayed. So you can imagine if you're in a fear state when things don't go your way. So let's put it in the, the, the narcissistic fear of feeling inferior category, personality type. You can imagine when someone's going through life and they have a need to feel superior and all of a sudden somebody triggers their inferiority thing and they need to get back to being superior. So they're going to put you down. They're going to be condescending. They might rage a little. They might be mean. They might insult and, you know, make personal attacks and things like that. So when things don't go their way, when I feel inferior, when I feel abandoned, when I feel ignored, when I feel dominated, then I'm going to do something that's pretty negative. And it comes down to this pattern for any of these five types. When things don't go their way, they're going to blame. Number one, full stop, there's blame. It's always someone else's fault. There's a target of blame in every situation. Then they have unmanaged emotions. So where you or I might get upset, you know, we might cry about something and we all get angry, whatever. They get angry every time or they cry every time or they rage every time and everything's a crisis. has to be handled now. Unmanaged emotions. The third pattern is extreme behaviors. So what seems extreme to you doesn't seem extreme to them. And the kind of the bright line test is when they do things that 90% of other people would never, ever do. And to them, it seems normal. It seems very natural and necessary. But to the rest of the world, no, going to court 47 times isn't normal. That's extreme. Um, Slashing your ex's tires. That's extreme. Dumping the trash out on your ex's lawn. That's extreme right? So 
when things don't go their way. Then the last piece of it is all or nothing thinking. They see the world in terms of black and white. You're for me or you're against me. You're my friend or you're my enemy. And so their thinking is that way and their solutions to their problems that are many in relationships, interpersonal relationships, are kind of, they think of them in those terms. And so there's not much option finding, solution finding, problem solving. It's just a lot of blame. So it's four things, blame, all or nothing thinking, unmanaged emotions, extreme behaviors. That's so helpful. I really appreciate you breaking it down and giving us examples because absolutely slashing your excess tires would be something totally extreme. And I really appreciate the the concrete example here that it's not just, you know, yelling was an example you gave us of a behavior that could be extreme if it's done in a certain way or at a certain frequency. Are there any other behaviors that are often misperceived as a behavior of a high conflict person when it's not one of these four? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. So here's a little twist, right? Often in high conflict situations, and most every high conflict case is going to have at least one parent who is high conflict or one party who is high conflict, has a high conflict personality. What happens to the non-high conflict person is that high conflict person has been getting under their skin for a long time. And now they're going to court or now they're exchanging the kids or whatever. And just something gets triggered that one last dig is made or that, you know, you know, people will say things like, you know, I will have custody of the kids and I will turn them against you for the rest of your life. They will never love you. Right. And then they go to court and have a big smile on their face and I'm best parent in the world. Right. So the non high conflict person in that moment sometimes loses it, snaps. And it's really common for this to happen where they snap in a way that's outside of their norm and then they look high conflict. And then people get it backwards and the court sometimes gets it backwards because this person looks high conflict when in actuality it was just like a one time event because they were just finally sick of it. Yeah. I've seen this over and over with stepmom clients where, yeah, we had, we had one blow up. We had one misstep on our side because they just pushed us too far, but we're not the high conflict ones. And the question I get asked so often is, but can the court see through that? And I think you're a great person to answer that for me. Can, can they sometimes see through it? Maybe not all the time. It depends. It, it really, it just depends. To really have an understanding of this, you know, you you don't have to have a degree in psychology or even a lot of psychology background, but you need some training in this, in these this high conflict personality type, so you can kind of spot some things like the words that people say, the charm that they come in with, you know, kind of get your antennas up so you're paying attention and don't get it backwards. Ask for documentation, you know, if you're a listener and you're you know, supporting someone who's going to court or you're going to court yourself, just make sure you have a plenty of documentation that can show a pattern of really bad behavior. Otherwise, the, the courts just don't know what to do. I've talked to the judges behind closed doors and they're like, I want to do a good job. I just don't know who's lying and who's telling the truth when allegations are made. You know, domestic violence, child abuse, child sexual abuse, you know, just to the I didn't get the kid's report card. She won't let me have it. The judges don't know. So I think majority of judges want to do a really good job. 
And once they, you know, a lot of them intuitively and innately get it over time, I think, and some get some good training, but, and then they get rotated off to another bench, like civil or criminal. And so it's, it's almost like we need a family bench that's there, you know, permanently for years and years. I imagine that's a very taxing job that someone can't stay on that bench for years and years and years. It's hard. It's really hard. And they need to do, you know, practice a lot of self-care because they're hearing so many accusations, trauma content stories, and making the, like the hardest thing of all is making decisions about children. (laughs) Somebody's children that, you know, they're suffering because of their parents' conflict. They're suffering because alienation is going on. And, you know, that's like probably the biggest thing of all. And I don't know a judge that doesn't like kids, right? Or that doesn't the best for kids. But like, how do you figure that out when you have 10 minutes for a hearing or seven minutes or 15, whatever it is, the bigger cities just don't have the capacity for this, you know, to hear all the facts. And so they're kind of doing the best they can in the time they have and with the information they have. I really appreciate that insight into the courts because I think for many stepmoms, when we talk about dealing with a high conflict person, court is something that's happening again and again. And it feels so big and so monumental in our life. But I think what may actually be really helpful for us is instead of talking about this kind of very large problem of court, let's talk about the more day-to-day communication because this is something we have maybe a little bit of control over on a very regular basis, not just waiting for our court date. So kind of thinking about communication, first and foremost, how much and which communication is necessary when a child has two homes? Do you have any recommendations for how to handle this necessary communication with someone who's high conflict? Yeah. Yes. Great questions. All the, okay. all the good stuff, right? <laughs> so we have at High Conflict Institute developed something we call the BIF method. BIF response. And it was actually Bill Eddy, my co-founder at HCI, that he figured all this stuff out. He's kind of brilliant. And he was, so he was training some judges, some family court judges years and years ago. And they said, you know, we've got all these parents who come to court and they have reams of paper full of text messages, printouts, you know, and email printouts and stuff. And they're just back and forth. And we like, it's just insanity. What do we do? What do we tell them to do? And Bill said, well, you should tell them to make their emails brief. Like if you get a nasty email, you get something hostile, spicy, whatever. Just when you write back, go ahead and write your email, but then biff it. So we're going to make sure it's brief, only two to five sentences. If you give more, you're giving too much for them to come back at you with. And, And the whole point of biff is to just keep it contained and not get something back, except maybe, okay, thanks, right? So then informative, the I is informative. And what that means is just the facts, straight up info, no blame, no admonishments, no arguments, no defensiveness. Even if they're saying something nasty about you, ignore it. That's it. Okay. Keep it informative. Cross out anything that's not informative, not just factual. And then keep it friendly, which just basically means keep it civil. You know, it doesn't have to be over the top. Oh, I love you. None of that. Just, just, hey, have a good weekend. Have a good time with the kid, whatever. You know, just keep it civil. And then firm. So firm doesn't mean you've got to make this, you know, aggressive, firm email. It just means the last sentence needs to close it firmly. You just state what you need to say. If you need a response back from the person, 
you make that last sentence a question that focuses the person on a choice. Like I can have Devin there. I can drop him off at your house on Friday at two or at four, which works better for you. Okay. Asking people choices makes them think instead of argue. So, and then you take out any advice, admonishments, or apologies. Advice, they're not looking to you for advice. Admonishments, they're not looking to you for that either. And apologies, the kind of the, the reason for this is that if you apologize, like, you know, the, the high conflict person is a blamer, right? And whether it's an overt blame or something more nuanced, you know how it feels and you want to kind of either blast back or you apologize. A lot of people apologize out of their own anxiety or just to calm conflict. And if you do that with a high conflict person, what it does in their mind is puts in the idea that, see, it is all your fault. You Mm -hmm. apologize for it. And, you know, you get someone who's a dominating type, they fear being dominated. They're going to take that apology email and take it to court and see, say, see, it is her fault. She admitted it. I really appreciate you talking about the BIFs and the three A's because these are tips I learned from you years ago and through the High Conflict Institute. And I think they're so, so helpful for giving us a framework. Is there communication that we don't need to respond to? Does everything require a response? Absolutely doesn't require. And I think you can kind of mostly suss it out. But if there's ever a question, just remind yourself that when this high conflict person is in fear-based mode and which is, it isn't like they're terrified all the time, but it's just when that fear of feeling inferior is, is, I mean, it just takes front and center all the time. Right. And so when they feel something hasn't gone their way, they get trapped in their right brain and that's where negative emotions are. Their bridge over to the logic brain just shuts down and all the junk in that right brain, like I hate you or you're an evil person or whatever, it'll come out because they have a real problem with impulse control. (laughs) So on the phone, just voice text it, type whatever, email it, boom, it's gone. As soon as they hit send, they feel better. Ah, Bridge opens up to logic brain again. I feel good. I'm back on top of the world again. I feel superior. I feel dominating. I feel attached. Whatever. In the meantime, you received it. You feel like crap. And then you go, oh, I've got to figure out how to respond to this. And then people are in bed at night and they perseverate about it and they lose sleep over it. And instead, just write your email, If decide if you need to. A lot of times you can just tell if it's just, they're just dumping, don't respond. It, it's not going to make you a bad person. It's not going to make you look bad in court because you're just going to respond to the important stuff. And if someone takes you to court and says, look, he or she didn't respond all these different times. Well, let's see what the, the original email was. Let's look at that one. And if it's just dumping, the court's going to see that. I appreciate you giving stepmoms this permission or couples in this situation, this permission to not respond to everything because you talk about being controlled by fear, but in a different way, so many of these couples are controlled by the fear of what could happen at court. And if I don't respond, am I going to lose custody? Am I going to have to pay child support at an increased amount? Whatever that fear is of what could happen in the unknown of court. And they need permission to not have to respond to everything, especially if it's just an attack. Yeah. I've had clients that just 
at the end of the night, they've got 50 text messages just telling you how awful you are, how awful your partner is, whatever. And I'm like, please just mute that. Mute that conversation. If you can't block them, if you can block them, block them. If you can't mute it, because you don't need to see all of this and it doesn't require a response. It doesn't need to control your emotions in that moment, but they need that permission. Right. It just blows up your life. It it controls your peace. Mm -hmm. And I tell you what, anyone listening to this, do not let that person hold your peace in their hands. You have control over that, right? You can let them just annoy you and annoy you and and you because you are looking at every text message you are looking at every email you are whatever don't do that i mean you can go to the most highest level of of management of this which could be just have a number just for that purpose and you only look at it once in a while you know like on a regularly scheduled basis obviously emergency instructions for if there is emergency which is almost never right But just even down to using, you know, a software, there's plenty of them now for communication. So that's all recorded. But let's say you text your ex and say, I'll be responding on Thursdays, whatever, pick a day. I'll be sending any information that is, you know, you need to know about Johnny on Fridays or as needed, something like that. You've got to take more management over that. And you, by doing that, and you do it in a biff way, just keep it brief, informative, friendly, and firm. When, if and when this goes to court, a judge looks at this, they're going to say, okay, who's reasonable here and who's not? Okay. You just keep showing a reasonable pattern of behavior. It's really hard to fight that. Now, I know it, it, court is difficult. I understand that. And not everyone's going to get it, but you, you, you can't go wrong. If you go reasonable steps all the time where you're using Biff responses, where you're making proposals instead of, you know, making directives and things like that, where you're setting limits regularly by saying, here's what I'm going to do. And just, just, I know it's hard, but you just keep being that reasonable parent. That's a hard battle to fight against for the other parent, unless they're making stuff up. But then you need to ask for documentation. Say, okay, judge, where's the proof? I love this. I love that there's something we can do when the co-parent is spewing lies. Okay. you and, And we feel the need to protect ourselves, to defend ourselves when they're attacking us and spewing lies. And having this tool to say, okay, where's the proof is such a tangible way that our listeners can really respond to things like this that feel so out of control and scary. I really want to dive into what we're talking about and all of these emotions that surface. If we are finding ourselves getting triggered by a high conflict person, do you have any tips for how we can sort of regulate ourselves first? Big bottle of wine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's it 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 can be really really triggering and you know when we're when we're triggered it's hard on our bodies it's hard on our minds it creates that chronic stress and that's just really hard on us, especially as women. The main thing I would say is remind yourself it's not about you. High conflict is crazy making. 
And you can start to think, it's me. It's all my fault. I'm a bad person. Remind yourself, it's not about me. It's about, and it's, this person isn't a bad person. They just have weak problem solving skills and they're fear, fear driven and they don't know it. I have to do something different here. I have to adapt because this person doesn't have the ability to. And, um, you know, take care of yourself and, and just, I think it's, it's just remembering, I, I don't have control over what they do, but I have control over how I communicate and how I think about this and then make time for you and your husband and make time where you don't talk about this and you don't think about it. Boundaries are so big and in every part of stepmom life, but especially when you're dealing with a high conflict person. Yeah. Are there any ways that we can sort of diffuse a high conflict person or a high conflict situation when we're in person? And and I'm thinking about like, especially when there's little kids around and how do we deescalate? Instead of fighting with them or trying to give them logic in that moment, think of them as only having access in that moment to their upset brain. And so they're reacting, 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 and they aren't able to manage it in those moments. And that's when things really get escalated. So you can have some impact. I'll put that, put it that way, impact and influence over that by using what we call an ear statement, something that shows empathy, attention, and respect. So really hard to do sometimes, but if you're disciplined and you just, you go, okay, I want to have a peaceful life. I'm going to use ear statements. And it can be something like, you know, that does sound really frustrating. What that does is it makes their reacting right brain feel better, opens up the bridge over to the more calm, logic, problem-solving brain. And that's where you then start to talk about proposals. How about we try this? What do you think about that? I have some ideas and some solutions. Then you can get people thinking, so let's think about some options. What ideas do you have? What proposals do you have for solving this? Because they're not, remember, they're all or nothing thinkers. And so they're stuck in that, I'm going to do it my way. And if you open the door to, hey, I'm willing to talk about solutions. What ideas do you have? Then it calms their fears. I mean, ear is the best way. It works so quickly that it's it's really shocking. Let's say your your husband and his ex are arguing. They're the ones in conflict and you're kind of the bystander there. You're exchanging the kids, the kids sitting in the car watching this. And, you know, they're just keep going at it. It keeps escalating, escalating. You could step in and say, hey, you guys, you know, Teddy's in the car watching this and seems pretty upset. So how about we you know, come back to this another time. And you say it in, you know, a calm tone of voice because the amygdala, there's parts of the brain that are paying attention to tone of voice. And if you come in with a escalate, an escalated tone of voice or something, you know, it could sound or feel to them that it's condescending or threatening. And so you just stay calm, matter of fact, and say, look, I understand you guys are upset. This is a very upsetting situation. I have a proposal, right? So you're giving a little ear first and that can calm most people unless they're really steamed up. And then you might say to your husband, it's time to go. We need to go now because, you know, Cecilia is getting very upset in the car watching. The girls are upset. They're watching this and it's, you know, conflict's really bad for kids. Sometimes, you know, there's nothing you can do. 
I don't want to say like ear is going to magically solve everything. I would always try it because the opposite, excuse me, getting, trying to use logic with people who don't have access to their logic brains in those times of stress is just illogical, right? Really helpful. Thank you. I'm imagining walking into a situation with someone that we know is predictably high conflict and sort of the dread or maybe anxiety that comes with that situation. Do you have any suggestions of like pre-planning or preparing that can be done when we know that we're about to enter a situation where we will physically have to be around someone who's high conflict? Oh, so hard, isn't it? I mean, that's like just so hard. And, and you said the word that is most often associated with high conflict, and that's dread. We hear three words over and over from people who call us from all over the world and all walks of life all cultures. And it's, I dread seeing that high conflict person because I'm exhausted from the chaos. So dread, exhaustion, and chaos. I recommend having a little checklist that you look at. It can be on your phone. It could be on, you know, on your door. It could be on your keypad of your computer, wherever. Put it on your Google calendar or whatever calendar you use. Anytime you're going to see this person, a reminder list of, okay, I'm going to use ear statements. I'm going to be vigilant instead so I don't get taken by surprise. I'm going to watch my tone of voice. I'm going to shift them into problem solving after using, you know, get them calm before I get them thinking. And I'm going to walk away if things really escalate because I need to protect myself. And that's, that's okay. You just have to be that calming influence. When your heart rate goes up and you're feeling that tension, you know, do something that gets you into your logic brain. And that may be play a game on your phone for 10 seconds or a minute or whatever. Like I have Wudoku on my phone and it's just a little puzzle thing. If you have a pen and paper, write out what's happening in the moment or something like, I am so upset right now. I dread the way that will get you shoved back over into your left logic brain and then you'll calm. So do something that is either physical or something that's going to make you think. This has been so helpful on so many different parts of dealing with high conflict people. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your expertise. Please share with our audience the best way that they can get in touch with you, learn more about what you're doing, and especially at the High Conflict Institute. Uh, Well, thank you so much for having me on today. I love to talk about all of this, and I, I I hope it's helpful. Thanks for the opportunity. The website is highconflictinstitute.com. We have, you know, we train professionals and then we also have programs for individuals like parents, conflict influencer program. We have a a program, especially for co-parents called new ways for families. And it's where the parents can learn skills like BIF and ear and making proposals and giving yourself encouraging statements and all of those things that are very specific to high conflict cases. There's also lots of lots of videos and stuff, but we we have something new this year called the live lab. The live lab is where you can come on with me or someone from our team who will help you learn to practice, you know, practice using ear statements when someone's blaming and escalating and all that and how to write BIF and how to make proposals, things like that. Okay, great. I will make sure we have links to the High Conflict Institute, specifically to New Ways for Families and for the live lab, because these are incredible resources that I know so many stepmoms and their partners are needing. Yes. And there's one more I should mention too. There's a book 
called Biff for Co-Parent Communication. It's an invaluable resource for co-parents, whether you're the co-parent or you're the stepmom. It's just, it, it has a you know ton of examples in there of how to write Biffs in those touchy situations. And you don't even need to read them all, but if you, you know, they're there for you. And it just is a real encouragement to use Biff as much as possible. Brilliant. I will make sure that is linked as well. You are such an incredible resource. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here and share all of this with us. This is such a great intro for people who are just struggling with how do I even begin to deal with a high conflict person, but you also have all these resources for us to go deeper when we need to. Well, it's our our pleasure and we're happy to talk to anyone. Uh, We also do, I didn't mention this, but we do consultations for high conflict legal cases. So lots lots of resources, lots of books and things. So we're happy to talk to anyone anytime. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. To all of my stepmoms listening, thank you for tuning in to the Stepmoming Made Easy podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Please make sure to go follow the High Conflict Institute. They have an incredible newsletter that they send out. They have incredible resources on their website. Thank you for being here. I'll see you right back here next week.